This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It is Wednesday. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. We're, we're plugging along here. Okay. So um, I think you are taking us on a journey towards pulmonary development and talking about fetal lung fluid today. Is that correct? That's true. One of my favorite topics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very, very high yield for the boards. Right. Okay, so let's start with the development of the lung. Um, The first thing really to know is that uh, the development of the lung really starts in five phases, Uh, the first of which is embryonic. So in the embryonic phase, that makes sense. It's the embryology. It's the first thing that happens. Um, In uh, that is zero to five weeks. So that all happens pretty quickly. And then the subsequent stages or phases um, happen in about blocks of 10 weeks. So the first, the embryonic, is five weeks. And the next set of stages, uh, one, two, three, four, the next four, um, are in about 10-week blocks. So um, the phases are uh, titled this way. Embryonic is first, pseudoglandular is second, canalicular is third, The terminal sac or the saccular stage is uh, next. And last is the alveolar stage. There's actually a mnemonic uh, that's commonly used for the stages of lung development. And it's each for embryonic, part for pseudoglandular, comes for canalicular through the terminal saccular stage, age, alveolar. Each part comes through age. And the boards love to test on this, um, particularly because of the associated pathologies in each stage. So in the embryonic stage, zero to five weeks, uh, the respiratory tract develops from the endoderm. So that's commonly tested, endoderm, all the way on the uh, kind of inside, the endoderm, Um, along with the digestive tube and the thyroid, which helps to explain why certain disorders happen in this developmental period. The lung actually forms from a ventral bud of the esophagus, and that becomes uh, later when we talk again about the the pathologies that we see. Um, And the branching mechanism of lung development relies on the underlying mesodermal mesenchyme. The mesoderm is also where the pulmonary blood vessels grow at the end of the embryonic phase and where smooth muscles are derived from. So that's how things get started. Then you have the pseudoglandular stage. It's really from weeks 5 to 16. I find it easier, again, to think in blocks of 10 weeks, so like 5 to 15. The developing pulmonary epithelium begins to produce fetal lung fluid, and further lung development and growth relies on this fetal lung fluid, the breathing uh, efforts of the fetus, and peristalsis of the airway. So we'll talk a little bit more uh, about fetal lung fluid in just a little bit. And in this phase, there's the separation of the thorax and the peritoneal cavity, as well as development of the vasculature. 
Subsequently is the canalicular stage from about 16 weeks to 25 weeks. Again, I like to remember 15 to 25 weeks. And this is where the pneumocytes begin to differentiate, which we'll discuss in more detail uh, on a later date. And it's in this stage that the units responsible for gas exchange are even starting to, to, to develop. So this is what makes the lung truly viable. So again, it ends at about the 25th week. And at this time, there is an adult number of airways. So that's important. So all of the airway development, the bronchi development um, is basically complete by the canalicular stage. This is followed by the saccular stage in weeks 25 to 36, and I like to remember 25 to 35, where the very last generation of air spaces in the bronchial tree are complete and multiple sacs uh, uh, are beginning to form from the terminal bronchioles. Um, So that's the the start of the alveoli, these kind of uh, terminal sacs. Um, And then uh, finally is the process of alveolarization, where there is the increase in bronchioles and alveoli, uh, really true, truly mature from the alveolar sacs. And over time, the alveoli grow in, in diameter. We also start to see microvascular growth as well as vessel maturation. And the alveolar stage occurs from week 36, so you're just getting to term here, really, all the way until ages about three to eight, though there's debate in the literature, so that the lung surface area continues to develop significantly postnatally. In fact, you have about 50 to 150 million alveoli at term gestation, but it increases to the 200 to 600 million in the mature lung. Amazing. And it's also amazing what we ask these premature lungs to do. I do want to spend a little more time on alveolarization because this is important for the test. Um, there are a few parameters that enhance or delay alveolarization. Um, it's known to be enhanced by vitamin A and thyroxine, which is why it was felt that vitamin A might be valuable in the prevention of BPD. Um, in contrast, alveolarization is delayed by postnatal steroids, oxygen, nutritional deficiencies, mechanical ventilation, insulin and inflammation. And sometimes this can be tricky because we think steroids good for the lungs. Um, And so steroids help to mature uh, the surfactant prenatally, but uh, administration of postnatal steroids actually delay alveolarization. That comes up often in the practice questions. And then there's all these things that happen to babies in the NICU, the need for oxygen, uh, nutritional deficiencies, the need for mechanical ventilation, the need for insulin, and obviously inflammation um, from a variety of sources that all also delay alveolarization. And so um, I want to talk a little about the pathologies uh, that are associated with lung development. Um, and I'll remind you of the mnemonic because this is sometimes this is a question. Each part comes through age, embryonic, pseudoglandular, canalicular, terminal sac, um, alveolar. Um, the boards love to test on them. But since we know what happens in each stage, identifying the pathologies that occur in those timeframes is going to be easy peasy. So in the embryonic, as you remember, that's when the lung is forming from the ventral bud of the esophagus. So the, the 
the things are all still kind of connected. And what happens when we have developmental abnormalities here, we see laryngeal clefts, tracheal stenosis, tracheoesophageal fistula, and bronchogenic cysts. But that makes sense because things are kind of trying to separate, but if they don't separate the way they're supposed to, that's where we see those developmental abnormalities. In the pseudoglandular stage where I told you um, the fluid is starting to develop and also the separation of the thorax and the peritoneal cavity um, and really when um, the all the kind of large airy bronchi up to the terminal bronchi are established and also when the vasculars are beginning to develop, that's when we see um, branching abnormalities of the lung. That's when we see congenital diaphragmatic hernia. That's really the buzzword in pseudoglandular. We can see congenital lobar emphysema, cystic pulmonary airway malformations, and pulmonary lymphangiectasia. But again, this makes sense because that's when all of these things are starting to develop. In the canalicular stage, so when the canaliculi are branching out of the terminal bronchioles, that's when the type 2 pneumocytes are beginning to differentiate. We'll talk about the pneumocytes in a second, but that's really when gas exchange is beginning to work. Um, we start to see the development of surfactant deficiencies, pulmonary hypoplasia, and this is the developmental time where we um, see, see alveolar capillary dysplasia. So alveolar capillary dysplasia happens in the canalicular stage. In the terminal sac and um, in the um, alveolar stage, so if those are disrupted, um, that's really where we see other surfactant deficiencies and uh, uh, pulmonary hypoplasia. And if you remember in the alveolar stage, that's when the vasculature is really starting to mature. So if things go wrong here, that's where we get the development of pulmonary hypertension. So let's talk a little bit more about fetal lung fluid. The fetal lung fluid actually stretches the developing lungs. So it's absolutely critical to have a certain threshold of fluid so that the lungs grow. Fetal breathing movements play a part in this uh, lung maturation because it actually functions to oppose lung recoil and help to maintain lung expansion. It's almost like the fluid form of PEEP. It creates the pressure necessary for growth of the airway. So when the larynx is open, Fetal lung fluid can leave the airway and it mixes with the amniotic fluid. But in particular, it's closure of the larynx that creates this back pressure into the lung that maintains an airway volume similar uh, to the functional residual capacity at birth. They also like to test about the basic science here. Fetal lung fluid is made by active chloride secretion. Um, chloride is uh, actively transported across the epithelium into the future air spaces. And this creates an osmotic gradient inducing fluid flow into the future air spaces. And that's how um, fetal lung fluid is secreted into what would be the developing lung or the, the air spaces. Obviously in fetal life, they're filled with this fluid instead of air. This process is inhibited by epinephrine um, and a lot of other hormones, which makes sense because epinephrine naturally increases with the delivery state to inhibit this fetal lung fluid production. Um, and just prior to birth, and this is in really term deliveries, the epithelium changes from bring, being chloride secreting to sodium absorbing. 
And in this way, the fluid shifts. Sodium is moving from the fluid in, in the potential air spaces, and then it's moving into the pulmonary epithelial cells. And water and chloride then follow the sodium, reducing the amount of fetal lung fluid that remains in the now uh, air spaces that will hopefully soon be filled with air. So I have a mnemonic for this one too. I hope it helps you guys. Um, I always say that chloride creates the fetal lung fluid and sodium sends the fetal lung fluid back out. Chloride creates, sodium sends back out. Now, fetal lung fluid decreases about one third. So of all the fetal lung fluid that is in the lungs, about a third, about 35% um, is removed during the days prior to birth. And again, this prenatal clearance occurs mainly by decreased formation and secretion of fetal lung fluid um, because there's a markedly decreased chloride secretion. And eventually this stops leading up to birth. And simultaneously, like I said, the epithelial cells are pumping sodium from the alveolar spaces into the interstitium and fetal lung fluid follows. Chloride creates sodium sends back out. And there's increased lymphatic oncotic pressures and low fetal alveolar protein leading to more movement of fluid from the alveoli to the pulmonary lymphatics. So that's only about a third of the fetal lung fluid. And then during active labor, um, about a th another third of fetal lung fluid is further cleared from the alveoli and the airways by the following mechanisms. So there are mechanical forces with compression of the fetal chest, forcing fluid out of the lungs and into the oropharynx. And we say this a lot to parents that, you know, uh, like say a baby in a, who has a C-section didn't get this squeeze. And so that's why there's still so much um, fluid left, but that's really only part of uh, the equation. There's also this catecholamine surge at the onset of labor that increases transepithelial sodium transport. And you remember, that sodium sends fluid back out. So now it's really pumping. And then there's also this higher cortisol and thyroid hormone concentrations, again, increasing transepithelial sodium transport. So all that's happening during the active labor process. And then postnatally, still about a third of fetal lung fluid remains even in the most quote unquote, typical scenario, the physiologic scenario. Um, but this uh, final third clearance of this fetal lung fluid is important for normal postnatal adaption. This uh, is removed by lung distension, leading to an increase in transpulmonary pressures. That's why we like to hear babies really cry, uh, open up those lungs, fill them with air, um, which leads to uh, driving more fluid mechanically into the interstitium. And if a baby's not crying, then we can give PPV and um, create the same uh, forces of lung distension. There's increased lymphatic oncotic pressure and low fetal alveolar protein, leading, again, to movement of fluid from alveoli to pulmonary lymphatics. And there's a note here in the board review book, it's helpful to have some fluid still in lungs to distend the airways because this greater airway radius allows for a lower pressure needed to overcome the surface tension of the airways. So we keep a little bit of fetal lung fluid uh, because it reduces the surface tension of the airways and it keeps um, the, the alveoli from collapsing completely. And so obviously clearance of fetal lung fluid is just vital for this extra uterine pulmonary transition. 
it occurs, starts prenatally, like we said, it continues during labor, and then the final piece is complete postnatally. There are other changes in the lung also that help with our uh, pulmonary transition. So there's a decrease, a necessary decrease in the pulmonary vascular resistance. And this occurs by a number of mechanisms also. One, lung inflation. So with lung expansion, there's activation of the stretch receptors leading to a reflexive pulmonary vasodilation. So again, opening up the lungs using the distension um, causes pulmonary vasodilation, bringing more blood flow to these lungs that were not being used previously. The second, gas exchange. Um, so again, if the baby's crying, inhaling, exhaling, or we're using PPV, this leads to an increase in oxygen content resulting in, again, increased in pulmonary vasodilation. And then certainly there's innate vasoactive mediators that assist with this process, nitric oxide, endothelin-1, all leading to increased pulmonary vasodilation. So decreasing pulmonary vascular resistance and getting more blood flow to the lungs. And obviously there are some babies that despite all of these mechanisms have an abnormal transition. So some babies may have a delayed fluid resorption and there are many reasons why this may happen. There can be maternal or pregnancy labor-related factors, excessive maternal analgesia, uh, excessive maternal fluid administration, all of the, these things um, will uh, inhibit the fluid resorption um, or provide extra fluid in the system. There can be delivery factors. So again, cesarean section um, inhibits that middle phase of, of fetal lung fluid uh, reduction. Breach presentation, delayed clamping of umbilical cord, all of these can um, interfere with the new, the normal extrauterine pulmonary transition. And for some of these things, we feel like the benefits outweigh the risks, so we tolerate them. But just know that in that process, um, we may be interfering with the normal transition. And then there can be fetal infant factors. So perinatal depression or asphyxia, polycythemia, and an inadequate epinephrine surge at birth all will lead to abnormal um, fluid resorption. Um, and I told you fluid was a big part, but obviously this, uh, the normal decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance is also this critical uh, piece to a normal pulmonary transition. So area obstruction and atelectasis, that can cause lack of oxygen, oxygenation and minimal alveolar ventilation. So this can happen with lots of secretions or a baby who doesn't cry, and then we have to initiate PPV to start this cycle. Um, inflammatory conditions, things like uh, congenital pneumonia, sepsis, chorioamnionitis, can lead to increased concentrations of leukotrienes, thromboxane, platelet-activating platelet factor. And all of this inflammation causes pulmonary vascular constriction. And so it really interferes with um, the decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance. Pulmonary hypoplasia. So this, I told you, happens in a number of stages uh, of lung development. Um, and if this happens, particularly, uh, for example, in the case of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, we know that those babies are at increased risk for pulmonary hypertension, abnormal pulmonary vascular resistance. And that's really because the pulmonary vasculature really developed abnormally. Um, you can have defects of prostaglandin or nitric oxide synthesis, which again, normally help to uh, create 
pulmonary uh, vasodilation. But if you don't have enough of those um, synthesized, then you don't have uh, that decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance. And then maternal medications can have a similar effect in dimethicin and other inhibitors of prostaglandin synthesis like aspirin. So uh, those are the big uh, features of pulmonary development and fetal lung fluid uh, creation and clearance and uh, the extrauterine pulmonary transition. <laughs> All right. So let's do, uh, let's do a question. Um, I have pulmonary question to open. Daphna, the fetal lung fluid plays a critical role in lung development. Prior to birth, uh, 30% of fetal lung fluid is cleared from the alveoli and airways of the following, which anion slash cation is actively transported across the pulmonary epithelial cells to include fetal, to induce, I'm sorry, fetal lung fluid absorption prior to delivery. Choice A, bicarbonate. Choice B, chloride. Choice C, hydrogen. Choice D, potassium. Choice E, sodium. Yeah, well, we talked about this at length. So, I mean, sodium is intimately tied with the movement of water. So That is correct. Yeah, so sodium is the correct answer. In utero, chloride is actively transported across the pulmonary epithelial cells into the air spaces, creating this osmotic gradient that induces the flow of liquid into the fetal lung. So, which is sort of what you want. You want to have lung, you want to have the the, the fetal fluid be inside the lung prior to birth. The respiratory epithelium changes from a chloride secreting to a sodium secreting membrane with the active transfer of sodium from the alveolar spaces into the interstitium. About 30% of fetal lung fluid can be absorbed prior to delivery. Prenatal fetal lung fluid clearance is further induced by increased lymphatic oncotic pressure and low fetal alveolar protein, which induces movement of fluid from the alveoli to the pulmonary lymphatic system. During active labor, 30% of fetal lung fluid is further cleared from the alveoli and airways by the following three mechanisms. You have number one, mechanical forces with compression of the fetal chest, forcing fluid out of the lungs. You have a catecholamine surge at the onset of labor, which further increases the transepithelial transport of sodium. And number three, you have higher cortisol and thyroid hormone concentration, inducing additional transepithelial sodium transport. Postnatally, about 35% of the fetal lung fluid remains to be cleared, and this is accomplished by lung distension, increased lymphatic oncotic pressure, and crying, which increases enterothoracic pressure and maintains open alveoli and forces fluid into the adjacent capillary and lymphatic vessel. Pretty good. All right, buddy, I'll That's see you that. tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.